Jonathan, even risking his own life in verse 33, was seeking to reconcile his father to David. You're listening to David, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. So we're gonna begin this sermon this morning with a sobering poem. And the name of the poem is Around the Corner, and it was written by a gentleman by the name of Henson Town. So I'm gonna put it on the screen so you can follow along. Here's the poem. It says, around the corner I have a friend in this great city that has no end. Yet days go by and weeks rush on, and before I know it, a year is gone. And I never see my old friend's face, for life is a swift and terrible race. He knows I like him just as well as in the days when I rang his bell, and he rang mine. We were younger then, and now we are busy, tired men, tired with playing a foolish game, tired with trying to make a name. Tomorrow, I say, I will call on Jim just to show that I'm thinking of him. But tomorrow comes and tomorrow goes, and the distance between us grows and grows. Around the corner, yet miles away. Here's an email, sir. Jim died today. And that's what we get and deserve in the end, around the corner, a vanished friend. Wow. Is that something you can relate to? Have you found that friendships are just, well, let's just be honest, they're impossible. Have you found that? Friendships seem to be impossible. Can you say amen to that this morning? Someone's like, no, I got good friends. Okay, cool. We're all envious of you today. You're the only guy in the room that has great friends. Um, It seems like with friendships, we are always the one, you're always the one who's initiating. Does anyone feel that way? Like, I'm the only one in my set of friends that's the one always texting, always calling, always emailing, always, hey, we should get together anytime now, and they never call back, they never respond, they always have something going on. Raise your hand if you honestly believe this morning that you are the friend of your set of friends that is the initiator. Let me see if you're here this morning. Really? So you guys don't feel, or you're just afraid I'm going to throw you under the bus. That's what you're afraid of. <laughs> you see, seven billion of us can't be all the initiator and think that it's, it's us and everyone else isn't. Um, E.C. McKenzie said this. I like this quote. He said, some people make enemies instead of friends because it's less trouble. <laughs> it's less trouble. <laughs> it is difficult. Friendship for a lot of us is not easy. It's not an easy thing that we just attain. It's really more of a lifelong goal. One person, uh, person captured this best when he said this, one of my goals in life is to wind up with eight men who are willing to carry one of my handles. <laughs> wow. You see, in times of joy and triumph, we want a friend that we can call and who will celebrate with us. I got the job or I won the trophy, or this happened in our life. It's a boy, and we want to celebrate with those friends. We want someone to call who will kind of be alongside us in those great moments of triumph. We also, in times of despair and difficulty, want a friend who will come alongside us and who will encourage us and who will say, hey, I'm with you, and I don't need to do anything except just be with you. And the Scripture tells us in Proverbs 18 this, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In other words, you may have a lot of people around you, 
You may have an entourage, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Those people who are with you may be there for the photo op, but they aren't going to be there when times get tough. I know I've struggled with this. I want to have people around me, but I want more than just faux friendships. I want more than just a group of companions who see if my life is struggling, but they're not. I really want people who will, who will not just say, oh, that's too bad. I want people who will be there behind the scenes and lend a hand. But the scripture tells us there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In fact, one anonymous writer said, prosperity begets friends, but adversity proves them. Isn't that awesome? And in our text this morning, we see David, the future king of Israel, at this time with his entire world falling apart. If you were to read this story not knowing the end, you would say, well, certainly there's not a lot of hope for this guy, David. He's definitely in trouble. He's been anointed as the future king over Israel by the prophet Samuel, but all that is now is a threat to his own life. He's defeated Goliath, yes, of course, and he has great fame and notoriety among God's people, but that is now causing danger in his relationship with the king. He's newly married, and yet that marriage to the king's daughter is not something that has promoted him. It's actually a liability in his life. He's constantly seeing God's favor in every single aspect, in every decision, in every adventure. And yet, in all of those successes, it's causing him to be deeper and deeper and deeper in the king's wanted list. And so Saul is out to kill him. And as David flees for his life, of all the people who come to befriend him, it's Jonathan, the son of Saul, the heir to the throne, who becomes his closest friend. So what we're going to see today as we study this passage is we're going to see what, what I call gospel friendships and what gospel friendships look like. And if you've been with um, us during this series, we've been looking at who we are not in the story and who we are in the story, and we're going to see that today. Are we Jonathan or are we someone else? And we're going to learn in this um, sermon to really, like, what does it mean to have great friends uh, but most importantly, how to be a great friend. But we're not just going to leave it there. We're going to walk away with an even more important gospel truth as we study this chapter together. And as we see the gospel displayed in the friendship between Jonathan and King, or the future King David. So here's what we're going to do to outline the um, text today. If you're taking note, we are going to start in verse 12. And we're going to see first in verses 12 through 23, Jonathan's devotion. Jonathan's devotion to his friendship. Then we're going to see in verses 24 through 34, Saul's determination. He really is determined to kill David, and we find that out for sure after testing him. And then in verses 35 through 42, we're going to see David's sad departure from uh, the kind of the throne room, if you would, of the king. So that's where we're going today. Let's start with Jonathan's devotion. And I, like I mentioned, we're going to start in verse 12, but as you've noticed, we skip verses 1 through 11. And if you notice from last week, we skipped chapter 19 altogether. So remember, this is a survey of First and Second Samuel. So we're not covering every single verse of the entire um, two-book study. This is an overall survey looking at the life of David through the lens of Christ. So let me catch you up from last week. We left off last week in chapter 18. Remember, Saul was seeking to kill David via spear. Remember that? and then by way of the Philistines, and then by marrying his daughter. No, he wasn't trying to kill David by marrying his daughter, but it was an indirect way to get David to go out and be forced into battle to pay the bride price with 100 dead men. And we saw David instead kill 200 men, 
And the opening line of chapter 19 is this on the screen. Here's chapter 19, how it opens. It says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Now, now that, by the way, could be considered an act of treason. But to keep reading, Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. You see, Jonathan speaks well of David to David and to his father Saul. And he gets David back into the palace. So Saul listens to his son. He says, you're right, son. So he lets David back into the palace and back into his good graces. But then something happens. War breaks out again. And as war breaks out, David goes out and fights the Philistines. And you guys remember from last week what happened. What, what happens when David goes out and fights people? The ladies come out dancing and they begin to sing. And so the Ryan Seacrest Top 40 song for 52 straight weeks, here it is again, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his tens of thousands. I had a really lame joke in there that I'm not gonna read, um, so you're welcome. Bad sermon joke, not gonna do it. So what does Saul do, what does Saul do? Saul sees um, David playing the lyre again, and so he erupts again. What does he do? Well, he's probably got a handful of spears next to him. I would just take the spears away, but he grabs another spear, he hurls it at David again, and then basically David gets away. Remember, David's a young shepherd boy. He's pretty spry. He is able to, again, duck and run out. And this time, though, um, Saul sends hitmen to wait for David at his house. So he's waiting for David to leave in the morning. And David's new wife, her name is Michal, um, she finds out about it. And so what does she do? She does the classic trick that every teenage kid does when they want their parents to think that they're in bed, but then they sneak out for the night. Kids, don't learn this from church, okay? Don't do this. But she takes some pillows and a kind of a adorns, like, there's David. She puts pillows under the blanket. She actually takes an idol and makes it the headpiece. And so the hitmen come in, and they think it's David, and it's, you know, it's obviously not. It's, it's fake. And um, I won't tell you the story about the time I did that to my wife, where I dressed up the bed as she was coming to bed, and it looked like me, and then I hid in the closet and jumped out and scared her. I won't tell you about that because that was one of our first worst fights. And <laughs> my grandmother just said, how could you do such a thing? How could you do that? Sorry, sorry, honey, love you. We'll never do it again until next week. So the, the hitmen tell Saul and the daughter, Michal, is forced to lie and say, well, David was gonna kill me. So that's why I did that. And so this again incites Saul. And so David is now fleeing for his life again. And so he ends up with Samuel, the prophet. And then we get to a really obscure passage in the chapter 19 where Saul goes to find him and he starts prophesying with all the other prophets. It's very confusing. And, and we get kind of Saul sidetracked from his mission of killing David. And so chapter 19, to summarize, it paints three scenarios where Saul is out for David and three people protect him. Samuel, the prophet, uh, Michal, David's wife, and Jonathan, Saul's son. And when we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 20, we read that David meets up with Jonathan and he's like, man, what have I done? Your dad is out to kill me. Did I do something? Did I misspeak? What have I done to deserve death? And Jonathan says, no, no, no. No, you're misunderstanding dad. He's got kind of some struggles lately. This has nothing to do with you, David. He's just got some demons he's fighting. Trust me. I'll know if something's wrong. He'll tell me. 
And so in verse 6, David asked Jonathan, well, why don't you feel the situation out? Go to dinner and see after a few days how Saul is feeling if he's not bothered. And if he doesn't get upset, then we're good. But if he gets upset, how am I going to find out? Certainly people would be following or accompanying Jonathan, and this would give away his treason. So how are we going to let David know uh, that Jonathan has some intel for him? How is he going to let him know without being complicit as a traitor? And that brings us here to chapter 20, verse 12. And we learn about Jonathan's plan. So notice verse 12. Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward you, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? I'll let you know, David. Just let's wait a few days. Verse 13, but should it please my father to do you harm, then the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. This is kind of a fancy and elongated way of saying, I promise that I'll let you know what is going to happen. I'll text you as soon as I find out what is up. That's kind of the longer Hebrew way of saying it. So notice what Jonathan says next. He says, if I'm still alive... Show me the steadfast love of the Lord, the hesed of the Lord, that I may not die. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Don't you get the sense here from verses 14 and 15 that Jonathan perceives how this whole thing is going to go down? He's like, hey, please don't kill me. In other words, I know what's going to happen. I have full confidence in you, David. I'm not putting my confidence in my dad. We're buying time. But I trust that you're the future king. So show me the grace of God when you do take the throne. Show me God's love if I'm not killed by my dad and one day you become king. And even though Jonathan deserved the future throne, he's exchanging his own rights in preference for David. So in verses 18 through 23, we'll kind of skip over that, but we read of Jonathan's idea. And we just read through it. So he says, you know, don't go, don't go to dinner, just hide by the stone, and I'll shoot these arrows toward you, and then I'll send my little errand boy, and he's going to get the arrows, and if they land on this side of you or beyond you, then it's, it's not a good idea, it's not good news, but if they land short of you on this side, then it's good news, and, and I don't know, I, I, maybe I'm old school, but a simple thumbs up or thumbs down would have done, but Jonathan wants to shoot arrows and send kids, so verse 23 says, And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, in other words, hey, let's get down to the real deal. Here's the the bottom line, bro. He says, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Jonathan says to David, hey, David, you don't need to worry about that. Like, I'm making a commitment to you no matter what happens. This covenant is not going to be broken. Jonathan affirms his covenant with and his love for David even at the own risk of his own life. Jonathan was devoted to David, and he made this solemn oath to David in front of the Lord. He says, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. In other words, God, Jehovah, Yahweh, he is in this relationship. He's the centerpiece of this relationship, and he has brought us together. And if he's the center of this relationship, then it doesn't matter how you act, how I act, this is a reminder that the Lord is between us, and this is what binds us together, and this is what keeps us close. Now, back in chapter 18, you can go back in your scripture journals and circle this or underline this. I want to put it on the screen for you. This is 
where their relationship really began to blossom. Chapter 18, verse 1 says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, this is right when David defeated Goliath. We learned this two weeks ago. Uh, the soul of Jonathan, or last week, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And he took off his armor and even took off his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now notice with me that two times we're told in this text that Jonathan loved David. He loved him how? As his own soul. That meant that he loved David as he loved himself. Now, we're told in Scripture in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, that that is how husbands are to love their wives. Notice with me on the screen Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. It says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now, incidentally, I just want to pause here. So we're talking about this idea of loving someone as you love yourself. Incidentally, the Bible never instructs you to love yourself. Did you know that? The Bible never says you just need to love yourself first. It never says that. Why not? Why not? Because you already do. You already love yourself. You don't need to be instructed to do it. Married men are told here in Ephesians 5 that they should love their wives as they already love their own bodies. So, hey, here's how you love your wife, the way you love your body. That, that's how you're supposed to love your wife right? That, that's what he's implicitly saying. So listen, I'm a guy. Ladies are like, what is going on here? All the guys, we kind of get this, right? Do you guys understand this? I get this. So I work out at this gym several times a year. Um, and <laughs> when I come up here, um, you know, actually, I think Sunday counts. So when people say, how often do you go to the gym? I'm going to say every Sunday morning, I am at the gym. <laughs> you can say that now as well. It's not dishonest. I go to the YMCA early every Sunday. I spend several hours. Um, but I do notice some trends here. As I come to the gym, I do notice some trends. So I see, um, I see these guys come in, and, and they're kind of, you know, like, like they're standing here with the, with the weights, and they're, they're looking, all of them, at the same wall. They're all drawn to the same wall. And I wonder if gyms would be successful in America if we did not have mirrors. <laughs> I don't think they would. I don't, everyone would just be like, where do I look? They're just kind of staring off into nothing. Um, but uh, ultimately, these guys are just, they're just checking, the, yeah, they're looking at the, the arm. And, and every time I see that, I just think of Ephesians chapter 5. They love their bodies. They love to see the work that they're doing. Now, if you don't think that you love your bodies, just uh, I just want to ask you how you feel after missing an entire day of meals, right? You are not happy about that. Life is not good. And so we love our bodies. We clothe our bodies. We put them into comfortable beds with pillows. We care for them. And this phrase used to describe Jonathan's love for David is that he loved David as he loved himself, okay? Not only that, but chapter 18 says that Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David, it's the same phrase used to describe the patriarch Jacob's love for his son, his beloved youngest son, Benjamin. There's this sense of my soul is knit together and I'm loving you as I love myself. I, I want to prefer you and put you above myself. 
Now, that's Jonathan's devotion. Let's see what happens in the second section, Saul's determination. Look at verse 24. It says, so David hid himself in the field. He's going to wait for the plan to come together. The new moon came. The king sat down to eat food. The king sat at his normal seat, and there's Jonathan across from him. There's Abner next to him. But where's David? David's place was empty. It says in verse 26, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. And so he's kind of talking, well, maybe he's not clean. Surely, surely he's not clean. That's why he wouldn't come. He wouldn't disrespect me in this way. And so on the second day, it's another day, Saul now looks at Jonathan, and he knows. He says, why has the son of Jesse, why has David not come to the meal yesterday or today? Now, if it were me, I would have said, um... I don't know, Dad. Maybe the fact is you keep trying to kill him every time he comes to a meal. There's a whole handful of spears, Dad. Maybe that's why he doesn't want to come to dinner with you. Maybe he lost his appetite after the second spear was hurled at him. Um, But notice Jonathan doesn't do that. He sticks to the plan. Verse 28, Jonathan answered Saul, and he basically comes up with this um, story. Well, verse 30 tells us that Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan now. And notice what he begins to say to him. He says to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? This is an incredible, um, disgraceful cut down. For as long as the son of Jesse, obviously that's David, lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Now he's not wrong. He's telling the truth. Yeah, as long as... David is alive, there is no hope for Jonathan. Jonathan's not worried about that. He already sees God's hand on David's life. And then, of course, he says, therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Now, this isn't in my notes, but um, just a little time out. We are to honor father and mother. The scriptures tell us that. The Old Covenant reminds us of that. Ten Commandments, honor father and mother. There is one thing that I would say, one little caveat, one little asterisk. We're to honor father and mother. The scripture does not say you must obey father and mother when they're telling you to do sinful, illegal things that break the law of God. And so if you're a grown-up and you have a grown-up father or mother, you still honor them. Sometimes they may give you advice that is horrific and ungodly and sinful. And of course, you don't follow that advice. Jonathan doesn't follow his dad's advice and bring, I got to honor father and mother. No, he knows that this is wrong. And so he answered verse 32, his father, why? Why should he be put to death? What has he done? If he's guilty of a capital crime, then I'll follow you and I'll obey you, Dad, but you're sinning now. But look at verse 33. Saul stops negotiating, and now he hurls his spear at Jonathan. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Now look at verse 34. Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger, and he ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Notice he's not upset about his own disgrace, though he was greatly disgraced. He's upset about David being disgraced. So notice that Saul's hatred for David was momentarily transferred to his son, Jonathan. Saul now attempts to murder his own son, and this is a sure sign that he's determined to kill David. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's a sure sign that Saul has truly lost the favor of God upon his life. On a whim, in a flash of anger, he can do something so foolish, such as attempting to kill his own dear son. Saul is a desperate man, and he's a jealous man. 
Now, we learned about jealousy last week, but one of the sad marks of a jealous person is that they begin to lash out against anyone who's even an associate of the person whom they're jealous of. They begin to become suspicious of anyone who's connected to that person. So now he's, now he's jealous of David. Now he's angry with Jonathan. And so he insults Jonathan. He insults Jonathan's mother. He brings shame and disgrace upon Jonathan and upon David. Now his response to, to his son should have been broken humility. He should have repented here. He should have welcomed his son and the future king David to sit back at his table. And he should have gone and deeply apologized to Jonathan's mother, right? Uh, but instead, he's going to stop at nothing to destroy any person who threatens his own livelihood. Now, we're going to see this theme throughout the duration of our study of 1 Samuel. We're going to see the determination and the wickedness of Saul completely compared, some, like a dark background, compared to the brightness of the humility, honor, respect, and reverence that David has, even for Saul. Now, David, in this season of his life, is learning in a school that he did not necessarily sign up for. In the book, Tale of Three Kings, which is a fantastic book, Gene Edwards says this. He says, God has a university. It's a small school. Few enroll, even fewer graduate. Very, very few indeed. God has this school because he does not have broken men. The idea there is the school of going through this difficulty of having people against you. David's seminary was, of course, uh, a, a lot of ducking, a lot of running, a lot of hiding, a lot of praying, singing, and trusting that God would bless him if he did not retaliate against Saul's evil. And some of us, we've mentioned this, we have to go through some incredibly trying circumstances, and the reason we go through that is for God to break us and to use us to encourage others in the future. That's why I don't always say, why am I going through this, but who? Who am I going through this for? that I can take the 2 Corinthians 1 comfort that God has given me in those scenarios to offer to someone else. And so Saul's determination only continues to prove David's character. And may it be in our own life. When people are determined to bring us down, may our response be uh, good character. So we come to the third section now, David's departure. Look at verse 35. This is when they actually execute this plan. It says, in the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. Now, this just seems kind of confusing. Like, what is the point of all this? But again, to remind you, Jonathan has people with him. They certainly could be scoping out where he's at. And for him to be seen alongside David would absolutely make him complicit in treason. So that would, would threaten Jonathan's own life. And he has already spoken uh, to speak up for David. So we can already say he's already risking his neck to begin with. But this was kind of a plot, kind of a ploy to give David a message. And we see that all of it seems a little bit unnecessary uh, because when we get to verse 39, the boy knew nothing. It says, only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said, go and carry them to the city. So you could have just skipped all that and just went up to David. Uh, but listen, Jonathan had no idea how this whole evening was going to play out, Remember? In a world where there's no texting, there's no email, there's not even telegram, how else does he send a transmission without his father finding out that he's friends with David? So we find out that the boy leaves, and now Jonathan can communicate openly with David. Look at verse 41. It says, as soon as the boy had gone, 
David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So David's worst fears are confirmed. Saul wants him dead. He's no longer safe in the palace. He's no longer safe at home with his new wife. He's not safe with Samuel the prophet. He's not even safe back at his dad's house with the sheep. Where else can David go but to flee as a refugee into the wilderness and trust that God's going to provide and protect him? He has no one else to rely on except God now. David Gusick says this, Was David in God's will? How can anyone set out on such a bleak road and be in the will of God? Why? Because God often has his people spend at least some time on a bleak road, and he appoints some of his favorites to spend a lot of time on that road. Think of Job, Joseph, Paul, and even Jesus. This bleak road was important in David's life because if God would put David in a place where people must depend on him, God would teach David to depend on God alone. Not himself, not Saul, not Jonathan, not anyone except God. Now, what I want us to do this week, I have an assignment for you. I want us to spend this week meditating on and reading through chapters 21 through 31. Okay, that's 10 chapters this week. So if you read two chapters a day, they go quick. That will give you still two days off from reading. And what we're going to see for the rest of 1 Samuel is a sad story. We're going to see from chapter 21 to 31 a really sad story of Saul chasing David and David continuing to honor the king, calling him the Lord's anointed, and continuing to put his trust in God. He's not willing to touch Saul. He's not willing to retaliate. He's not willing to get even. He's just going to rest in the vengeance of God and trust that God's in control. And so that's your assignment this week. I want you to read chapters 21 through 31, 10 chapters this week. And next week, we'll look at chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, the beginning of 2 Samuel, with David's response to the death of Saul and the death of Jonathan. And we'll pick that up next week. But for our purposes today, um, I want to apply this passage. And I think we would really miss something big if we didn't talk about gospel friendships, the relationship that Jonathan and David have as an example for us. Uh, so I want to apply this by looking at gospel friendships. Now, when you ask the question, what, what do you mean gospel friendships? Because this is prior to the gospel. But they make a covenant with one another, trusting that God's going to be at the centerpiece. And so gospel friendships, what I mean by that is that these are relationships that point us to godliness. What was it that attracted Jonathan to David? Someone says, you know, friendship is where you find someone that you have things that you're in common you have in common. So you find a friend, it's like, hey, we both like Fortnite and we're in our 30s, okay? So that's what makes us friends, right? Or we're both in our 40s and we like Star Wars, amen. Or, hey, we're both in our early 20s and whatever, right? These are two things that we, we like to do together. We have similarities. But notice that's not what attracted Jonathan to David. The two of them couldn't be any more different. Think about the different worlds they come from. Jonathan is heir to the throne of Israel, He's the king's oldest son, so that makes him not just the prince, but the crown prince. 
Now, so that's Jonathan. David is the youngest son of an unknown family in one of the smallest tribes in Israel. His dad didn't even invite him when the prophet came calling. He left him out in the field. He's that important that he forgot him, right? Not an important part of the family. Jonathan grew up in the palace. He's an indoor guy, right? He's sitting and learning all the customs and how you hold your fork and the etiquette that's necessary to be a king's kid. Then you've got David. He's the guy out in the field with the animals, right? He washes his hands before he uses the bathroom. <laughs> he's, he's, he's an outdoor kid. He's out in the wilderness. His friends were sheep and rocks. Those are the friends that David had, okay? And, and so the, the similarities they had were not on a socioeconomic basis. It wasn't that that brought them together. It was their heart for the Lord. You see, back in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, we learn about Jonathan and his boldness for God. We read that Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14 climbed the side of a cliff with no weapons. His armor bearer is behind him a few paces. And he did that to rout a handful of Philistine warriors. And his whole reason for that was found in 1 Samuel 14, 6. He says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, who does that sound like? Doesn't that sound like David? That heart, that spirit, that attitude of desiring the glory of God. And here it's being undermined by these uncircumcised fellows. You think about it. The, the Goliath death, as people are singing and dancing about David, killing his tens of thousands. As merchants are starting to sell out of slingshots, right? And, and the whole economy is just going crazy over David. We read in chapter 18, verse 1, that Jonathan is drawn to the heart of David. He's not just going to sing about him. He wants to know him. I want to be friends with this guy. Not the, not the actions, but the heart. He didn't just care what David did. He didn't just want David as an accessory to his own honor. I just want to hang out with this guy because he promotes me. He makes me look good. No, I want to be drawn to him because of his heart. I'm not trying to advance my own status. Jonathan saw a heart for God that was beating the same way that his was beating. And there was a connection at the soul level. And, that, and that's what I mean by gospel friendship. Does that make sense? A gospel friendship is one where together it's God that's connecting us, that's uniting us, that's keeping us close. It's a friendship where together, when we come together, we don't come together to gossip. We come together to grow. When we come together, we are mutually edified. We're mutually challenged. We're mutually refreshed. And I believe that gospel friendship takes intentionality. We don't just find that by accident. We don't find it by default. I, I believe, in fact, from our text, it requires three things. So I want us to apply this. Jot these down. Number one, gospel friendship takes mutual love. Verse 17 tells us that he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now, I want to address this because of modern culture, okay? Some Bible teachers in the LGBT community have cast shade on Jonathan and David's relationship. They have suggested, some have suggested that Jonathan and David were not friends but were secretly male lovers. Now that is silly if it wasn't nauseating, incorrect, and ridiculous. This is an awful downgrade and it cheapens the relationship that they had. What we're saying is you can't have a same-sex relationship unless, you know, there's some type of, of sexual desire there. And we would say that's silly, that's, that's erroneous. Um, with that idea, you're saying, I can't have a true abiding friendship with the same sex without some type of desire there. Now, there are some who struggle with same-sex attraction. 
And, and I think that that needs to be surrendered at the cross, like lust for women who are not your wife, or pride, or anger, or laziness, okay? The problem is we don't link our identity with our sexual temptations. We crucify them, and we find our identity in Christ alone. And the difficult part of addressing that community is that often the identity of who you are is connected to your sexual preference. So um, we have to realize that gospel friendship here takes mutual love. It takes mutual preference. Verse 17 says, Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So there was a constant reaffirmation of that love. I love you, bro, and I know that you love me back. Now, our friendships need this as well. Our friends need our prayers. They need our texts, they need our phone calls, they need our counsel, they need our godly guidance. Sometimes they just need us to be there. No, no words needed. They just need us to be there, to laugh with them, to weep with them, as the scripture says, to mourn with them, to dance with them. Gospel friendship takes mutual love. But secondly, on the screen, gospel friendship takes mutual trust. We find this in verses 4, verse 9, verse 12, and verse 23. David could rely on Jonathan's news and know that he wasn't walking into a trap. Think about this. Uh, the foundation of any relationship is mutual trust. If Jonathan didn't trust David, then <clears throat> he would have treated him the same way his father treated him. Right? If Jonathan didn't trust David, he would have treated him that way. Total rejection, total suspicion, and the threat of death. If David didn't trust Jonathan, do you really think that whole arrow scenario would have worked out? Like, I don't really trust this guy. He's like, hey, just go wait over there. I'm going to shoot some arrows at you, okay? Don't worry, it's going to be over very shortly, right? Can you imagine that? He's got to be able to trust him. I'm going to shoot some arrows at you, I mean near you, and, and it's all going to work out. No. See, Jonathan and David had a deep, abiding, mutual trust. They believed in one another, and they believed one another. This was not lip service or deceit. They said what they meant, and they meant what they said. No relationship can endure five seconds without trust. There's a great little book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, and the author, Patrick Lencioni, points out that all dysfunctions in any work environment um, comes down to a lack of trust. I want to put it on the screen real quick. Looks like the, the hierarchy of needs, but it's not. The very baseline, he says, of any working relationship um, where it begins to grow into dysfunction is an absence of trust. So when you don't trust someone, that leads to a fear of conflict. I don't want to bring anything up because I don't trust how they're going to react. And that leads to a lack of commitment. So well, I'm not going to do it if they're not going to do it. That leads to an avoidance of accountability. No one's going to say anything. And that leads to inattention to results. That happens in any team. It happens all the time in friendships and relationships. So every friendship needs trust. Our friends need this. Our friends need to know that when they share something honest and private, it's going to stay private. We're not going to listen to their struggles and then tell it on the mountain, right? The home of a godly woman is never to be a revolving door where people can come and vent and slander and defame. No, the godly woman's home is one that stops sinful nonsense right where it starts and points people back to Christ and back to the person who upset them. And so we need that trust from people. Our friends need to know that when they're sinning, we will have the love and honesty to approach them according to Matthew 18 and say, you're sinning and I love you. Stop sinning. We need to pray. We need to work through this. They point them away from their sin and towards the Lord. We need friends who need to never have their guard up when we're around. 
so that they have to watch what they say or how they act around us because we haven't earned their trust yet. They need to be able to let their guards down. Our friends need that from us, and we need that from our friends. Mutual trust. But thirdly, gospel friendship takes mutual sacrifice. We find this in verse 4 and in chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. Think about this. Jonathan gives up the throne. He gives up his clothing. He gives up his armor. He gives up much of his dignity so that he can comfort, supply, and clothe his friend David. David's going to consistently prove his love for Jonathan throughout his life and throughout the coming trials. And they're going to show one another what true love is all about. It's what Jesus said, laying down your life for your friends. Now, our friendships need mutual sacrifice as well. Our friends need to see us sacrificing our perceived comfort by letting them in, letting them close. I don't want to let any friends in. I can't trust friends. You need to let them in. They need to see that we're willing to sacrifice our guard and our wall. Our friends need us to sacrifice our convenience by making time for them, clearing the schedule, having them in our homes, and not just living for ourselves or our families, but for our church community. Our friends need to see us sacrificing our fear by exhorting them to follow after Christ, not just smiling and approving of their shallow spirituality. See, gospel friendship takes mutual sacrifice. And we're going to dive more into that this week at community groups. Do you have a friend like that? May we be friends like that. Now, as we close, I want to invite our worship team forward. And um, I don't want to end there because if we ended there, then all you've heard today is just go out and be a good Jonathan. Just be a good friend. There you go. And it's rooted in moralism. It's rooted in just go hard, try hard, do it. And that's not what I want you to walk away learning. I don't want you just to learn like, okay, I need to go be a good friend to someone who needs it. We've been saying that's not incorrect, but it's incomplete. So pay attention to me very carefully. We don't need to be better Jonathans, church. Jesus is a true and better Jonathan. Think about this story from a Christ-centered perspective. Jesus is represented in Jonathan who makes a covenant with a despised people. His own livelihood is cut off to welcome in the refugee. He was disgraced and cast out that we, the outcasts, might be welcomed in. We look at Scripture and we realize Jesus befriends us. He clothes us in royal clothing. He bestows on us a kingdom that rightly belongs to him. And though we face the threat of certain death and destruction, the true and better Jonathan makes a covenant with us, and stands before our accuser to defend us. Who is a friend who sticks closer than a brother? I'm not exhorting you to be that friend. Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus in the New Testament was called friend of sinners, and he invites us into a relationship with him. And because of the cross, we can take these words from John 15, 15 to heart. He says, no longer do I call you servants, For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. How is Jesus a friend to sinners? Well, it isn't because he condones their sin or approves of their lifestyle without repentance. No, Jesus is a friend of sinners because of the cross. Christ, who is the true and greater Jonathan, stripped himself of his glory And he's covered us with the robe of his righteousness. He's armed us. He's girded us for the fight. 
Jonathan, even risking his own life in verse 33, was seeking to reconcile his father to David. And even though the picture isn't complete, isn't that what Christ has done on our behalf? 1 John 2.2 tells us that Christ laid down his life as a propitiation for our sins. Jesus is our mediator. He's our advocate with the Father, and he has made us shares of his throne in glory. It says in John 13, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of the world, he loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. You see, Jesus is a friend of sinners, not because they need friends, and he's, hey, a friendly guy, but because his friendship, listen, his friendship means our forgiveness. He stoops down and calls us friends after giving up his life for us. What love is this? Truly, Jesus alone is the man after God's own heart. Amen? Let's bow our heads together. I want to pray, and we're going to stand in just a moment and close in a song of worship. But I want to pray a prayer from Valley of Vision called Love Lusters at Calvary. I'm just going to pray this for us as a church. The prayer says this, My Father, enlarge my heart, warm my affections, open my lips, supply words that proclaim love lusters at Calvary. Their grace removes my burdens and heaps them on thy son who has made a transgressor, a curse, and a sin, and sin for me. There the sword of thy justice smote the man, thy fellow. There thy infinite attributes were magnified, and infinite atonement was made. There infinite punishment was due, and infinite punishment was endured. Christ was all anguish, that I might be all joy. Christ was cast off, that I might be brought in. Christ was trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. O Father, who spared not thine only Son that thou mightest spare me, all this transfer thy love designed and accomplished. Help me to adore thee by lips and life. O that my every breath might be ecstatic praise, my every step buoyant with delight as I see my enemies crushed, Satan baffled, defeated, destroyed, Sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood. Hell's gates closed, heaven's portal open. Go forth, O conquering God, and show me the cross, mighty to subdue, comfort, and save. Lord, we pray that today, that you would show us the friendship and the fellowship of your spirit because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Lord, we don't need to attempt to be better friends. We have the greatest friend of all who is closer than a brother. May he draw us near as we worship today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.